baptism. In our tradition, as Anglicans and as Protestants and as Christians, this is one of the most important things we can do. For, for us, it is equally as an important thing to do as is Holy Communion that we do every week. So before we get into the liturgical portion of what we're doing today in baptism, I want to give a little background, just a little, a little theology. So I kind of wrote this out as a homily to keep myself very on track today since we have some, some ground to cover. So let's go through this real quick. Baptism, defined, is to sprinkle or pour water over or to immerse in water. Now, we are part of the Protestant tradition as Anglicans. We theologically subscribe to the reforms that took place in the church in the 1400s and lasted for two centuries, known as the Protestant Reformation. The largest of the denominations to come from the Protestant Reformation were the Anglicans from England, the Lutherans from Germany and Scandinavia, and the Reformed churches in Germany, Switzerland, the Netherlands, and Scotland. And I've said this many times, I'll, I'll say this again. Every Protestant denomination in existence today has its origins in the Protestant Reformation and comes from one of those offshoots, all of which originally come from the Roman Catholic Church. No matter our theology, this is our history. So unless our ancestors were pagans, this is how we ended up getting here today. This is our spiritual heritage. In the Reformation, the seven sacraments of the church were narrowed down to two sacraments. Not because any of the sacraments were wrong or incorrect, but the Reformation went back to the scriptures alone. And so we, as a Protestant movement, went back to only that which Jesus himself instituted for us to observe, the two remaining sacraments instituted by Jesus himself for the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion, Holy Communion, whatever you want to call it, and baptism. So we make a very big deal out of the Lord's Table here at Four Winds every week. It's very intentional that we do this. We don't try to make this overly mystical. We don't try to claim that there's some magic that happens here. But we're not making it something that we can take or leave. Because it's not something that we can take or leave. Jesus said to do it. It ties us to the story. It reminds us who we are and what to look for. It's not a small deal. It's a big deal. Baptism is equally important 
as a sacrament that Christ initiated for his people. Now, sacrament, now most of us are all evangelicals who come from either a charismatic background or some other more traditional background. So you hear a word like sacrament and you're like, I don't know what that is. I should think something bad about the word sacrament. It doesn't matter what tradition you come from. It doesn't matter what pastoral track you've had and how you were ordained. You believe in the sacraments, whether you call them that or not. A sacrament is something holy or set apart. By definition in the Anglican Church, a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace given to us and ordained by Christ himself. Okay, baptism was not something that was invented by Jesus. It wasn't something that was invented by John the baptizer either. Baptism has its origins in the ancient Jewish culture. So when John showed up as a new prophet of God preaching repentance and inviting people into ritual cleansing, this rang true to them. It wasn't weird at all. It actually bolstered the fact that he was a prophet. The Mosaic Law, issued in the book of Leviticus, outlines and ordains ritual cleansing or baptisms for all sorts of things. In Hebrew, this would have been known as a mikvah. You have a mikvah when a healing takes place, when a child is born, when a person is allowed back into the community, and so on. This mikvah or ritual cleansing is where Christian baptism originates. This would have been performed by either fully submersing oneself in water or to have had water poured from a large cleansing jar over the body, body, sort of like taking a bath or taking a shower today. Once complete, the person would be physically and ceremonially clean. This cleanliness was very important in Jewish culture, both for what it represented spiritually and as a means to protect the people from outbreaks of disease and death. We'll talk more about that next week. A very intriguing fact is that when Jesus was at the wedding ceremony in Cana, and his first miracle was about to take place, he instructed the servants to fill baptismal jars for the miracle. John chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So in the fascinating way that Scripture weaves itself together, Christ turned the water into wine in baptismal jars. Wine would be the very instrument he would later institute as the symbol of his blood of the new covenant. This balances brilliantly the way we are symbolically washed in the blood of Christ for the remission of our sins against God. It's quite beautiful when you think about it.
So let's quickly look at what the scriptures tell us about baptism and then what it means to us spiritually. Start with Jesus. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 and 15. And you can look these up, but I'm going to go through them kind of fast. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Now, if there was ever a ritually clean, spotless person without sin, it would have been Jesus, right? And yet to fulfill all righteousness, he chose to submit to baptism. This is the starting point in a quick dash through the scriptures that I want to take us on. It's important to start here, though, so that we understand that Christ himself was baptized and that this was an important part of his ministry spoken of in all four of the Gospels. In Mark chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus says, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Jesus says the person who believes and is baptized will be saved. In Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 40, we pick up, at the conclusion of the first message given by Peter on the day of Pentecost. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So here we have a new parameter added, repent. The common denominator in what Jesus said and what Peter said is baptism. So, with John and Peter, repent and be baptized. Jesus says, believe and be baptized. The common denominator is baptism. In Acts 22, we have the account of the Apostle Paul's conversion. I'm sure that we all know the story. Paul's on his way to persecute believers. He's struck down blind by Jesus. Jesus asks him, why are you persecuting me? So on and so forth. Paul is then sent into the city to wait in Damascus for what he should do next. There's this guy, his name is Ananias. God comes to Ananias and says, I want you to go and speak to Paul. Ananias has a brief argument with the Lord saying, you know who this guy is, right? He's wanting to kill us. God sends him anyway. So Ananias prophesies about Paul's future and gives him these instructions. This is verse 16 of Acts 22. 
And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. This calling on the name of the Lord is repeated in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, Acts chapter 2, verse 21, and Romans 10, 13. And these verses tell us that if one calls on the name of the Lord, he will be saved. But baptism shows up again. It washes away sins with the calling on his name. Now, whether Ananias was speaking metaphorically or literally, uh, you can figure that out this week for yourself. I'm just reading what the scripture says. So I think that we can all agree without washing away or removal of sin, a person cannot be converted, justified, or regenerated. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 says, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here, we're told again that baptism has an irreplaceable role in the grand scheme of things. It's not something that seems to be optional or elective. So here's an interesting turn of events. Acts chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. Paul's on his way to Ephesus, and he, he, he comes into contact with some disciples. And they're talking to each other about the Holy Spirit, and these people have no idea what he's talking about. They have, they've never heard of the Holy Spirit. So let's pick up verse 3. So Paul asked, well, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So as we've explored New Testament scripture that discusses baptism, we see commandments to believe, to repent, to be baptized. But Paul here talks to some folks who have repented and been baptized and he's telling them that there's more they need to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and so they immediately are and the Holy Spirit falls on them so in the salvation process it seems that there's a fluid thing that happens to us when we come to Christ we hear the call of the Holy Spirit. The truth is awakened in our hearts. We believe. And then we have faith in what we believe. And that faith 
allows us to repent authentically because for the first time we can see our true situation before God, we realize the hopelessness of our eternal separation from Him. We see things as they really are and facing our plight, we call upon the name of the Lord. This process is gorgeous to me. It's beautiful. And I believe it's scripturally and utterly true. But to arrive at that definition of conversion, we can't go around baptism Because every scripture used to arrive at that definition commands baptism be included. In Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 3, through verse 6, we read, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So am I saying that you can't be saved without being baptized? I'm not. But I'm saying that baptism is more than something we may want to get around to. It's a sacrament given to us by Jesus himself. He didn't offer it as a suggestion. He offered it as a declarative command. So after Jesus had completed his work on the cross, he's about to return to the Father. He gives his parting words to the disciples and through them to us. It's known as the great commission. These are our instructions on what the core of our lives are to look like. It's what he told us to do until he returned. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Today, I tell my friends, my family, the world, that the old Adam, the old Jimmy, the old Crystal is dead.
have been buried with Christ. My sin is gone. Nailed to the cross. And paid for. By the blood of my Savior. Of my Jesus. Today, I declare that by God's relentless, unfailing grace, I am forgiven. I am free. I am new. Baptism represents for a Christian the fellowship of his suffering in a spiritual way. It allows us all to nail the person we once were to the cross with him and allow that man or woman or child to die. It allows us to be raised back to life anew in the fellowship of his victory. In a spiritual sense, we bury the person we once were in the water. That person is dead. The waters of baptism make us ritually clean before God. We are resurrected by the authority and power of Jesus Christ and come out of the water alive unto God and dead unto sin. Baptism finds its way into every biblical discussion on salvation, both Old and New Testament, whether it's a ritual cleansing of a person before they can come before God and offer a sacrifice of atonement, or whether it's the direct command of Jesus the Messiah. It can't be written out of Scripture. Therefore, it must have far more significance than perhaps we've allowed for. So for those of you who are about to enter into the death and resurrection of Jesus through baptism, well done. And if you weren't planning on being baptized today, but something is happening and you're like, no, I need to take this step, then you are welcome to join into this beautiful thing today. And if you have never accepted Jesus as your Savior before, but you're saying, no, I really want to be a part of this, then today is your day. Repent and be baptized. 